the true king is today, Jesus Christ. Join us in worship. Sit, stand, dance, jump. Just worship from your heart this morning. One God, firm foundation, our rock, the only solid ground. Nations rise and fall. Kingdoms once strong. Kingdoms once strong, now shaken. We trust forever in your name. The name of Jesus. Oh, we trust.
God. We exalt your name today, God. So let our praise be your welcome. And let our songs be a sign. We are here for you. This is why we came. We are here for you. And let your breath come from heaven. Fill our hearts.
And after this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone around like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and crowns of gold on their heads. And the day and night living all creatures never stopped crying. Never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come because he is worthy of it all. So, Father God, we come before you this day. May we lift our hands, our voices, everything we are. We bring this day, we surrender all the troubles, all the darkness of the week. Some of us are facing some hard decisions this week and hard, ugly stuff we may have gotten bad news from doctors but God we know that you are on the throne and we know that you deserve all the glory the honor and the praise because you are not just the great physician but the God of all power and might may our hearts be open this day to your word may you speak boldly through our pastor as he shares with us God as today we gave, we claim we claim with all voices that you are worthy of it all in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I just want to say on behalf of your church family, thank you to the worship team for our worship night that we got to have on Friday. Uh, there was just something really special. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's fine. Uh, there was something really special about having an extended time of worship where we could just sit in the presence of God. Uh, and there was, there was a sense in me where it has been difficult in this last year to really see myself in worship 
because there's so many distractions and so many other things to focus on. And, and, and it's really kind of difficult to worship in an empty room when you remember your family being around you. And so I want to say thank you. Thank you. Bye. You moved. All right. Um, and, and, and request that we do another one soon. So just, just going to throw it in there. Excellent. We can do Psalm 23. I love that. That's the one passage of scripture both of my boys have memorized, all thanks to Marge Menashe and Little Lighthouse Preschool. Hey, um, so grateful that we actually have some of you in here today that we get to worship together as we are slowly taking little steps towards normalcy, obviously with caution. Um, and I am so grateful that you guys are here, and I'm so grateful for those of you who are joining us at home or joining us on your phone, wherever you happen to be, whether you're in California or in Texas or Washington, High Friday Harbor. Um, just thank you so much that we get to do this, and I'm grateful for those in the tech team who make it possible that we get to stay connected. We are slowly working through the Gospel of John, and today I want to invite you to head back to John chapter 3. And as you do that, uh, because this is like the most natural segue in the world, I want to tell you about my favorite way to, to make red meat lately, because this has been like eye-opening to me. I, my family has been eating a lot of tri-tip, because they had a sale on it at Stater Brothers, and I bought all of it. Um... And for Tony and others who have been meat cutters, you guys are an unsung heroes of all of us guys who like red, red meat. Thank you for your sacrifices so that we could eat the fruit of your labor. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but Mr. Mangrella, you're the only meat cutter that I know by name, and I'm grateful for you. Um, but I, I, here's the thing with tri-tip. I have a love-hate relationship with it because it is perhaps the toughest cut of meat that I'm willing to buy. Um, and, and not, nobody likes it stewed or anything like that. And here's the problem with tri-tip. It is this really thick cut of meat. So in order to even get the, the middle of it remotely not sushi grade, you have to turn the outside into charcoal. Or at least that has been my experience because I'm not all that gifted and I don't have a Traeger or anything of those kind of things. But I have found a new way of cooking tri-tip. And it's called sous-vide, which is just a very pretentious French word for water bath. The long and the short of it is, rather than taking that cut of meat and throwing it on a grill and destroying the outside so that the inside doesn't poison you, I put it into a plastic bag, stick it in a, in a bowl of water, and keep it at 130 degrees for about six hours. And in the end, I pull it out of the bag, throw it on the skillet for about a minute and a half on each side to get a sear, and I serve it to my family. And it is more tender and juicy than just about any other cut of meat out there. Now, this is not an advertisement for sous vide, although I'm a huge proponent of it. But it ties in with the approach that we've been taking to the Gospel of John, and particularly to the third chapter of John. Because John chapter 3 is one of those passages or one of those chapters in Scripture that we can easily just go to one verse right in the middle, John 3.16, and focus all of our attention there, but the outside seems to be pretty tough meat, and so we avoid it for the most part. It can be confusing. And so rather than doing what we could have done, and when we taught John a decade ago what we did do, which is cover this chapter in one week or even two weeks, we decided to take an entire month on it. We have stewed on it, allowed it to simmer, because... I don't know about you, but what I have found is there is so much richness, so much relevance to where we find ourselves right now 
in the Gospel of John, and particularly in this chapter, but we would overlook it if we rushed through it because we would have focused just on the one verse that we always focus on and missed the beauty and the benefit of that other part of that chapter. So today we're coming to the end of that journey of John chapter 3. And before we dive into the last section of it, I want to remind us of where we've come from just as a lead-in. It began with Jesus going to Temple Mount back in John chapter 2. He went up to Temple Mount during the Passover, and then he walked into the court of the Gentiles. He recognized that they had completely and utterly missed the heart of God. They had turned a place that was intended to be Christ or to God-focused on worshiping him into a place that could benefit or line their own pockets because you had people selling cattle and birds and you had people exchanging money always for a profit in this place. And he said, you guys have turned my father's house into a marketplace. Get out of here. And on the heels of that, right at the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus was visited by one of the leaders of the Jewish ruling council, a guy named Nicodemus. Because he was curious about Jesus. He wanted to know more about him. But he was also concerned that if he came during the light of day, people would equate Nicodemus as as wanting to learn from Jesus. And he didn't want that public perception. He didn't know how he felt or how people would perceive it. So he came under the shadow of night, trying to get to know Jesus without really being exposed. And Jesus was very clear, hey, listen, I want you to understand, but you can't understand heavenly things because you're coming with this mindset of self-sufficiency that's more focused on your own efforts, that's more focused on you doing good work. And out of that conversation that he had with Nicodemus about being born again, we come to this passage, John 3.16 through John chapter, or John 3.16 verse through 21, that really touches on the human predicament. And what God has done about it. Because Nicodemus exemplifies how a lot of us approach God. i got to do it by my own strength. i got to be really good in order for God to take hold of me. And we're reminded in John 3, verse 16, God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, the only one that wasn't created like the rest of us were, but was eternally a part of the triune Godhead. He sent him to give his life for us, that whoever places our trust in him and begins to follow him will not remain spiritually separated, which is what the Bible calls death, but will have eternal life. In other words, will be restored back into relationship with God so that we can do what we, we were created in the first place to do reflect his heart, and co-labor with him in the care and the cultivation of his creation. That's what we were designed for, but sin has always gotten in the way, and Jesus came to deal with it once and for all. And that's typically where we go. You've got to scrape off the, the crusty black sections of the meat so you can get to the heart of it, but he's not done. Because from there, he says, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. Far from it. He sent Jesus to save the world. We were living in condemnation already because we place our dependence upon our own efforts rather than upon what he has done. We put our faith in ourselves, and he's, I just know he's looking at Nicodemus, or he's thinking of Nicodemus, and people like him when he's talking about this. He says, Jesus came as a light into this world. 
to direct people back to the Father, to restore that relationship. But people liked the darkness because their deeds were evil. People were more comfortable relying upon their own efforts, their own abilities, than simply faith in Jesus. And so Jesus is the lighthouse shining in the darkness, reminding people there are rocks and you are going right for them, but there is a safe harbor. Go there. And yet people want to try to save themselves. People want to be independent, self-sufficient. People like Nicodemus and people, I, I, I sense that posture of Nicodemus in my own heart. And on the heels of that conversation, we now come to another character in Scripture, somebody who is a counterpoint to Nicodemus, somebody whose posture stands in stark contrast to that of Nicodemus, and somebody we've already been introduced to. His name is John the Baptist. We were introduced to him in John chapter 1. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, but more importantly, John the Baptist was the one that God had called to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, for God's chosen Redeemer. And John was doing this by warning people he was a prophet in the best sense of the word. I know there's been a lot of conversation recently about prophecy and the place that prophecy has. And when we think of prophecy, our minds typically go to somebody who tells the future. But a prophet is simply, at its at its bare minimum, a prophet is somebody who speaks the words of God. And sometimes that means telling what's going to come. But more often than not, a prophet's purpose is to call out the people of God, to be people who say, don't keep walking that way. You're going right for the rocks. You've missed the heart of God. You have put your dependence upon your own abilities. And you are headed for destruction. And that's what John was doing. He was a prophet in that sense of the word. Calling people back to God. Reminding people, you're not self-sufficient. You, you were created to be dependent upon God. To do life with God. And so he was baptizing people. And that baptism that John was inviting people into was a baptism of repentance. And repentance is just a biblical word for when you're walking one way, you repent. It means you turn and you walk another way. Well, what was the, he calling people to repent from? Their own self-sufficiency. Their own efforts to earn their standing in God's eyes through obeying the law. Turn from that, turn from those things that are broken, because it's a broken stairway to heaven that will never, ever get you to the place that you're hoping to get. And instead, turn to God, because he's already done everything that needs to be done. That was the baptism that John was inviting people into. Why do I share that? Because we are about to see a conversation that John has with some of his disciples specifically about that baptism, because Jesus is going to begin doing the same thing. Jesus and his disciples are going to pick up on this idea of inviting people to turn from the things they've been dependent upon and turn and fix their eyes on God. All right, so with that introduction, let's go ahead and begin reading in John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, after Jesus had gone up to the Temple Mount and, and cleaned out the court of the Gentiles. And after Jesus had had a conversation at night with Nicodemus, 
Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, I'll mention that in chapter 4, we learn that Jesus isn't the one doing the baptism. It's his disciples who are doing it. But the point is, they are inviting other people to come to the end of themselves and to say, God, I need to fix my eyes back on you. They're doing the same thing that John the Baptist has been doing. Now, John the Baptist was still baptizing people at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. It wasn't about the place. It was simply about the fact that there was water to do the baptism. And people were coming and being baptized. And just for those of, uh, of John's readers who know kind of the timeline of John the Baptist's life, this was before John was put in prison. So he kind of situating it in, in the timeline for them. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. The Jews, who are so focused on the law, are very intentional about the kind of ritual baths that they undergo and the washing of hands and bowls and cups. When we were in Israel last year, we got a chance to see some of the, the um, baptism baths. It, down in the area of Qumran, we saw one of the baths where they would go in every day and dip themselves to purify their bodies before they would go and copy scripture. They took ritual cleanliness incredibly seriously. So there was an argument that's, that started up between one of these Jews and John's disciples over what is the purpose of ritual cleansing. Now, they never go into, John never explains what that argument is about, and it's really secondary to what happens. Because out of that argument, one of the things that transpires is that John's disciples learn that Jesus and his disciples have taken a page out of John's book, and they are baptizing as well in a different place. <gasps> and as if that's not bad enough that he's stealing a page out of John's book, more people are going to Jesus than to John. And for Jesus's, I'm sorry, for John's disciples, that is awful news. Because who is this usurper? I mean, he got the idea from John. This was John's idea in the first place. How dare he copy him? And how dare he be more successful at it than John himself? So they bring this news to John the Baptist, fully anticipating, I would suspect, that he will be upset. But listen to John's response. To this, John replied, hey, listen, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. Now let's pause for a moment. Because whereas John's disciples, I'm sure we're anticipating that John would be upset, that he would begin to feel insecure that Jesus, this usurper to his idea of baptizing people is actually doing better at him than it, he has the complete opposite response. He's not scandalized. In fact, he seems to be excited about the fact that as he, his star is dimming as the sun's is rising, right? He's actually excited about it. And then he gives this metaphor of a best man to the groom. Those of you who have been involved in a wedding, some of you may have been, a, 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 you know, the, the maid of honor or the best man, you recognize you have a very specific role. 
it is not to be the center of attention. It is not to draw attention to yourself. It is all to focus all of the attention on the bride and, and the groom. And for the best man whom John likens himself to, he goes, hey, why on earth would I possibly get bent out of shape that people are focused on the groom, on Jesus? That's the whole point. That's been my role from the very beginning. I was never sent here to draw all the attention onto myself. I was simply sent to prepare the way so that people would be prepared to come to him. And now that he's here, I rejoice. Let's press this metaphor just a little bit more. If John the Baptist is the best man and Jesus is the groom, then who's the bride? It's the men and the women who are coming to him, right? Because we know that the bride of Christ is the church, and the church has never been a building. It's always been a people. So we are a part of that bride, and all of the men and women who were coming to Jesus to be baptized, all of the people who could have gone to John but chose instead to go to Jesus, they were a part of that bride. And some of those that chose to walk away from John and move towards Jesus were even his own disciples, John's own disciples who became Jesus' disciples. And rather than getting his nose bent out of shape about this, John rejoices because he recognizes that he has a responsibility as the best man to step out of the limelight, out of the spotlight, and let Jesus take his rightful place and to rejoice when the bride comes to the groom and finds the life that he's been pointing him to because John recognized he could never save anybody. Just like I recognize I can't save anybody. Only Jesus can. And so why wouldn't I celebrate when Jesus' name is made great regardless of whether that means it costs me something? And then he, he closes this thought, and this is going to be the verse that we are going to lean in with the rest of our time this morning. He closes with these words. In verse 30, he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. I love those words because they are the words of a man who understands who God is and who he is in relationship to God. Remember, as the as Proverbs remind us over and over and over, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And by that, we don't mean a, t a holy terror of God, like he's going to strike us down. We mean a reverential perspective where you recognize you are God and I am not. It's about you, it's not about me. So I'm going to step out of the way. Or if you, it, for those of you who remember the original Rocky movie, remember how, how, how Rocky at one point is running and all of a sudden there's this crowd of kids that are following him and they run up the steps and he starts going, oh, Adrian. No, he didn't say Adrian at that point, but he's like excited that he made it to the top of the steps because, you know, he's geriatric, I suppose, or something like that. And he's got this circle of people all around him. And they're all excited, too, because they're, they're, they're borrowing his excitement. They have no idea what they're celebrating, but they're just celebrating because Rocky's, man, he's the man. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if somebody in that crowd were later on to say, hey, did you see the movie about me? What are you talking about? The movie about me, the part where I run up the steps and I'm, you know, that's about me. No, it's not. It's never been about you. 
It's always been about Rocky. In the same way, John the Baptist recognized, it's not about me. It's about the king of creation, the very divine word through which God spoke the world into existence, who then took on flesh and entered into this reality to save that which he created and holds together by the power of his will. His name is Jesus. I didn't know him at first, but I knew that God had called me to be about his work because a person can only do what God has given them to do. Well, this is what God gave me to do, to make the paths straight for him. And now that he's here, it is right for me to step into the background, step out of the spotlight so that Jesus can take his rightful place, so that people can run to him and celebrate with him and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the rightful place. So why would I ever get bent out of shape? No, I celebrate because he's here. And I celebrate for what that means for the bride, you and me. Now, I cannot help but acknowledge how starkly John's posture to Jesus' ascension stands to the way that the world teaches us to approach power or to look at our place and the influence that we have. I mean, we have just come out of, without a doubt, the most contentious election cycle in my lifetime. It was ugly. It was painful. It was divisive. The world teaches us that you do anything and everything you can to hold on to power and hold on to influence because that is the way that you shape the world according to your will. And so it's no wonder that this last year we have watched people do anything. They are ruthless. We are ruthless in our attempts to convince others to use what voice they have in their vote to give the right parties and the right people the power to bring about our will. And it has absolutely fractured our nation. And it has caused us to, to doubt the trustworthiness of the very people that are in power in any position. And it has caused us to stop even interacting with family members and friends and we unfriend one another. It's been ugly, to put it lightly. The things that have been done in order to try to perpetuate one party's hold on power over another's or to, to grasp power from one group and give it to another is awful. But that's the way the world works because we have this mindset that power is the way to shape the world into the way we want it to look. And so you look at everybody else who thinks differently than you as your enemy, as your competition, and you do anything you can to push them down as if power and influence and the ability to shape the world is a limited good. There's only so much of it. And in order to get more of it, you've got to take it from someone else. Or, or to change the analogy slightly, to go back to an analogy we used when we were working through the book of Philippians. 
It's like we're all in the water in a pool and all of us are trying desperately to stay afloat. And there's only so much oxygen for us and so what do we do? We reach out and we push other people down so that we can rise up and get another breath. Doesn't matter what it does to them so long as we are rising up. And we're seeing so much of that go on. I mean, just open your mailboxes. I'm sure that given the special election going on, there will probably be something in your mailbox in the next couple of days absolutely slinging mud at somebody. And that hurts my heart. And I know it hurts the heart of God because that's the way the world works. And it's not, it would be nice for us to say that just happens out there. That just happens in politics. That's just the way that politics work. And, you know, sometimes that works in business as well because we're all in competition with one another. And so we celebrate when one business stumbles because it means we get more of a market share. We look better when they look worse. I'd love to say it's out there and only out there, but let's be honest. This same mindset has percolated into the church. Remember, it's not a building, it's a people. We are the church. It has percolated into our own hearts. We carry this mindset that there's only so much influence. There's only so much prestige as if that's what we're going after. There's only so much honor and it's important that people recognize our worth. And so what do we do? We turn other communities of Christ followers who are part of the body of Christ into competition. And we secretly celebrate when they stumble a little bit because it means that we feel better about what we've got. We, we put down their theology because it somehow makes us feel better about our theological perspective, even though we're just a bunch of kids trying to explain what an infinite God is like from our own little peephole of our perspective. And we try to steal sheep from one another's flocks in order to fill up our seats so that we can feel better about ourselves. And it is such the antithesis to the heart of God because we're thinking like citizens of the kingdoms of this world that place power on a pedestal and place influence up there as if it is, place our comfort up there as if that's the greatest thing that God can give us. And we fight tooth and nail from, for it. And I cannot help but step back and just consider the words of John the Baptist and the posture that he takes because it is such the antithesis to the way that the world has taught me and taught you to operate. John recognized that his star was setting. It was dimming in the light of the sun as Jesus became more the focal point and he celebrated because John knew it was never about him. He had a right perspective and that perspective had been shaped by his focus on God where he recognized it's about you, it's not me. You are God and I am not. So I'm not going to ask you to order creation around me. I'm going to submit myself to you. What do you want? You want me to go out and make a fool of myself in the wilderness? 
You want me to call out the people who have power and remind them that they have missed, because, and, and, and the power brokers he was calling out were not the Romans, by the way. He wasn't calling out the political power brokers. He was calling out the religious power brokers who were claiming the name of God, who were claiming to represent the heart of God, but quite honestly were representing their own interests. He was calling out the kind of people who would use a temple that was focused on worshiping God in order to line their own pockets. He was calling them out. He was calling out a people who were called to point people back to God over and over and over again and reminding them, hey, it's not about your own personal piety. It's not about the rules that you keep and how good you look and how, how often you're, you're posting things that make people think, oh, wow, that person is a really good Jew, right? It's not about that. It's not about your image. And John, unlike Nicodemus, who came at night because he was afraid of his image, he was afraid of other people's opinions of him, John was willing to make a fool of himself. John was willing to call out power brokers, even though it would ultimately cost him his life. John was willing to let God help himself to his life, help himself to his voice, help himself to his influence, help himself to whatever he had to do what he wanted to do. And so despite, even help himself to his disciples. God, you want them? Go, look at, that's the Lamb of God. That's the one that can give you life. And John's disciples leave John and go to Jesus. That's the heart of a man who has a proper perspective of who he is in relationship to God. And I cannot help but ask, what would it look like if the people of God stopped thinking like the world around us thinks that influence is the most important thing, and so we have to hold on to that at all costs. And power is the way by which we get what we want. And so we have to fight tooth and nail against our politicians or against things that we don't like, and we need to expend our energy there. What would it look like if we took a step back and went, wait a minute, Jesus could have come and, and tried to become a king like all the other kings. In fact, as we'll find out a little bit later in this story, when we get to John chapter 6, there will be a group of people who will actually try to make him king by force. And Jesus straight up walks away from them because he has no interest in becoming a political leader. Rather, Jesus led by sacrifice. Rather than the way the world works, which is I must conquer you so that you have to submit to my will, Jesus overcame the brokenness of this world by spilling his own blood, by sacrificing himself, by serving. Jesus modeled the heart of God and the values of the kingdom of God, just like John the Baptist modeled the values of the kingdom of God, and they are diametrically opposed to how the world tells us to operate. Rather than might makes right, Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the servant of everyone. Rather than constantly trying to position himself so that he would look the best, Jesus was constantly stooping down and, and, and talking to people who 
the, the, the religious elite would say are unworthy of your time, like the kids and Gentiles and sinners and even tax collectors. Even they don't deserve your time, right? Jesus would touch the untouchables like that leper even though that made him ceremonially unclean. He did it because it restored that person's dignity as much as it restored his health. And Jesus was willing to do those kind of things. John the Baptist recognized it is not about competing with Jesus as if he's competition. I am simply the best man <clears throat> who gets to be about making him the focus. Now, what if we began to approach life in this broken, screwed-up world we find ourselves in, in this time that is unprecedented? Can I be the first to say, I'm ready for some precedented times? I'm kind of tired of unprecedented times. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a little weary of it. But how do we, as Christ followers... Begin to reflect the heart of God in a world that's going haywire. I can tell you, it is not by playing by the same power struggles that the world around us tells us to play. And it is not about pointing to ourselves and, and competing. Guys, in the last month, there are two church planting couples that have stepped away from, from the churches that they have been leading for over a decade because they're exhausted. There's one church that used to rent space here that has ceased to gather altogether. There's another church where I grew up that has had to leave their property that they've been my entire life because of a power struggle. There, it, it kind of feels a little bit like we are in the doldrums of a marathon where we've hit mile 19 and we're closer to the end than the beginning, but our bodies are weary. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling that way. Where we are, be, even though we know I'm almost there, six or seven more miles, I got this, I can do it, but our, but our bodies are telling me, oh no, you can't. And there are many, many people around us who are falling on their faces and giving up. Who are just exhausted. I was telling Jeff uh, how I felt that way this week. And he goes, you know, my son ran a marathon. And he knew that it didn't matter how much he had trained for it. Around mile 19, he'd hit the wall. And so my family all stationed themselves right there. So that when he hit mile 19 and his body was saying, you can't keep going. They were there going, yeah, you can do this. Can you imagine if we, the church, did that for our neighbors, did that for our other fellow believers in communities that are hurting. Could you imagine if we said, everything I have, God, it's not for me to make my own kingdom better. We are not competing with any other church around here. We are not competing with any of our neighbors. We're not competing with any of the politicians over at City Hall. We're not competing with any other businesses. We are pieces of salt that God has scattered into our neighborhoods to preserve 
and bring flavor. We are light bulbs that he has planted all over this county and all over, for those of you watching from out of state, from all over our country to radiate the hope that we have found in him. And that light doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from our relationship with him. We can't radiate our own light because we will not represent his heart well. I know what comes out of my own heart. It's pretty selfish. It's pretty self-focused. I'm just speaking for myself. I'm sure all of y'all are perfect. But I recognize a selfishness, kind of like, I, I recognize my own Nicodemus that is afraid of what other people think and is trying to prove my worth to the world to, to my community, and most importantly, to my God through my own efforts. And I'm reminded today that John the Baptist says, hey, it's not a competition. You are not here to try to beat somebody else out for a limited good, whether that be power or influence or security or even property. As much as we've been told that the American dream is owning property and we've got to beat somebody else to that, it's like, you know what, that's not the end, be all, end all. As much as that rails against my flesh, I have to remember it's not about me building my own kingdom, my own little fiefdom, carving it out and competing against everyone else. I get to be part of his kingdom, and that means he's my king, and he has the right to tell me what I should be about, and my values should reflect his values, because that doesn't diminish my value. It means that I get to be part of a much larger much longer-lasting kingdom. My own kingdom lasts for about a heartbeat because I'm here today and I'm gone tomorrow. The kingdom of God has existed longer than any human being was alive, has existed longer than this planet has existed. And there has been so much oppression and there have been so many people have, that have position themselves against it, and yet it has never fallen. That's our kingdom. Or to change the metaphor slightly, I am not the central character to my own little story, as if the movie Rocky was really about me because I was an extra. I wasn't, but that would have been really cool. Rather than trying desperately to be the central character to my own little story, let's call it a novella. I am a supporting cast member. You are a supporting cast member in the most epic love story in the history of humanity. It's a love story of a creator who created a people in his own image to have relationship with them. and entrusted them with the freedom of will so that they could actually choose to have relationship back. But the shadow side of that is they could also choose to focus on themselves and to not trust him, and that's what ended up happening. And sin separated God's image bearers from their creator, but he wasn't willing to give up on them. And so he entered into our existence taking on human flesh, taking on the frailty we experience, walking with us for a season, 
and ultimately laid his life down to restore us back into relationship, doing for us what no amount of rule-keeping, no amount of sin management could ever possibly do. And best yet, he then invites those rehabilitated image bearers to be his ambassadors to others who were created in his image that have yet to taste and see that he is good, have yet to come and find their identity in him. That's what you and I are invited into. Because we are not the central character in our own little novella does not diminish our value because we get to be supporting cast members in the greatest story ever told. That is way better. That's what John recognized. So he has no problem celebrating when the groom gets the focus. He has no problem stepping into the background and letting Jesus be the focus. So I have a couple of questions that I'm going to invite you to grapple with like I have had to grapple this week with and will continue to grapple with. Question number one, whose kingdom are you striving to build? Like that, question number two, whose name are you trying to make great? Question number three, what does it mean to get out of the way and let our king be the focus? What does that look like for you? What are the ways in which you have been mixing that up and you've been trying to stand in the spotlight or saying, hey, maybe I can share the spotlight with them? What would it look like for you to willingly, joyfully step out of the spotlight, whether that be the the public spotlight or most importantly, your own little spotlight, whatever that looks like? And then the last couple of questions are, What would it cost you? What would it require you to lay down? But also, what would you gain? I hope that in your life groups, you guys will grapple with these questions. They're tremendously important. But my prayer for us, as a people who have been called by the name of God to be his representatives, is that we would stop representing ourselves and be more focused on representing him, that we would stop competing with our brothers and sisters who are called to the same thing elsewhere, stop celebrating when they stumble, stop hoping to grab sheep out of other sheep pens and bring them here because that's not going to help, and instead be more focused on how can I reflect the heart of my God in my sphere of influence, in my neighborhood, in my home, in my workplace, How can I celebrate when God calls one of you elsewhere like he did with the Barones to Texas or, you know, others that he, you know, uh, that he has scattered all over the country? If we're about building our own kingdom, that is horrible. If we're about building his kingdom, that's the whole point. Some of the very best things that God has done is tapping some of you on the shoulder and some of you who are watching right now and say, hey, come with me. I have another place I want you to shine in. And as, as a pastor who is trying to wrestle against his own flesh, I celebrate that God has called you out. Ben and Cheyenne out there, you know, in, in um, 
Tennessee, I am so grateful he called you out there, and I pray that you are flourishing. I pray that you are blessing that church. And others of you who are watching from elsewhere, please do not feel like you're missing out on not being here because God has planted you where he's called you. And there are some of you who in the next couple of years, God might tap on the shoulder and say, it's time, come with me. And that may be a loss for this iteration of the community of God, but it is in no way a diminishment of the kingdom of God. In fact, sometimes it requires us dying to the place that we love to be. We love to hang in the, 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 the wheat stalk, but sometimes it takes a kernel of wheat falling out of the wheat stalk and being planted in, in barren ground for God to begin to bear a huge harvest. And I pray that we would have the courage to do so. I pray that we would step out of the way because we must decrease so that he can increase. Let me pray for us. Father God, I am so grateful for John the Baptist's posture because it so radically challenges each of our hearts that are, so, that are taught to be about making our own name great and building our own little kingdoms. And today we just want to lay them down. And we want to gra grab hold of the much larger narrative and, and begin to find our place in it. God, may you continue to develop in us a proper perspective of who you are and who we are in relationship with you so that we can be about your business and celebrate as you advance your kingdom regardless of what it costs us. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. God, I give you what I can today. You scattered ashes that I hid away. I lay it on. At your feet From the corners of my deepest shames The empty places where I've worn your name Show me the way And show me the love That I say I believe Help me to lay it down. Oh, Lord, I lay it down. Oh, let this be where I die. My Lord, with thee, crucified.
my positions and my crowns, all the things that I hold dear, oh God, you're welcome here, you're welcome here, you're welcome in this place, cause we are here for you. extend your hands like this, because sometimes uh, we're a visual people. I just want you to hold your hands out and consider for a moment the things that you have been relying upon lately, the things that you have been running to for your security to preoccupy yourself, to kind of take your eyes off of how crazy the world is? What are the things that you have been pouring so much of your energy and attention into that they have in some ways even begun to eclipse Jesus's place? What are the things that you have been looking to to be your pseudo-saviors? And would you be willing to offer those to him? Not because they don't matter. I imagine that they matter greatly. But you, would you be willing to offer those out to him and say, God, your will be done. Have your way in this. Have your way in me. Everything I am is yours. I know I have expectations for what life is going to look like and it doesn't currently look that way. God, I offer it to you. Because I know that there's a lot of pain in our community right now. We just lost a friend and a husband in, in Cary. We had his memorial service yesterday. He passed away because of throat cancer. We're going to miss him. Timmy, I know that you, you tore a muscle and that has probably going to sideline you this entire season may potentially affect college football and I know that there's a lot of our expectations of what life should look like that we've had to let go of we live in a broken hurting world so much so that we had somebody break into our mailbox again and steal mail out of it again there are hurting people who are willing to steal from a church in order to help themselves make it one more day. And I just want to pray for those who are hurting in our own community, and I want to pray for those outside of our community that are hurting. Father God, it doesn't surprise you. And while we may feel like we're drowning, you stand above it all, and you know that you are using even this to advance your kingdom. You're not overcome by it, even if we are overcome by it. 
So would you help us to not listen to our, our flesh that cries out, push someone else down, tear somebody else apart so that we can find some solace, so that we can feel better about ourselves. God, would you give us discernment to know how best to represent your heart, even if the very best way to do so is by being silent when we have something really cutting to say. I pray for those who feel overwhelmed, those who are hurting. And I pray, Father, that we would be the kind of people who would be a reflection of the light that came into this world to point us back to the Father. I recognize, Jesus, we can't save anybody. All we can do is point people to you. May they see you in us. And so, find you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Guys, I love you. If you've got prayer requests, please email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you want to give, apparently mailing checks in is no longer really a safe way to do it. So you can give online, you can give in the back. Um, if you have mailed a check in the last couple of weeks, I would just ask that you check with Robin to see if we got it. I'm sorry about that. Um, but you can also go to our website, lighthousecommunity.com. Or you can go to our app, uh, and, and you can, all of that is there as well. You can give through that. We love you so much. We're so grateful to be on this journey with you. If there's any way that we can be supporting you, please let us know. Now go be the church.